1: The old world is dying, the new world struggles to be born, now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters uh, podcast, hosted by The Nation magazine and available wherever uh, you can uh, listen to podcasts. It's now being widely circulated. Uh, And today, you know, as I think for the foreseeable future where the major monsters, are the uh, justices of the Supreme Court the uh, six um, um, uh, uh, Republican-appointed judges who um, um, are increasingly pu- pushing the United States in a reactionary direction and uh, overturning uh, long-held precedents? Um, obviously, you know the biggest news is the. Uh, last Friday's decision, uh, long expected but still shocking, to uh, overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, ending the constitutional right to reproductive freedom. Um, But there's also been a subsequent decision on prayer in public schools, which is related. It's all part of the same reactionary project to um, uh, restore the sort of power of a a fundamentalist religious um, increasing minority, minority population um, uh, to give them uh, outsized power uh, over the um, the state. Uh, so I want to, um, today I'm very happy to have a frequent guest on this podcast, friend of the podcast, uh, Linda Irshman, who I've described before as the uh, Cassandra Um, of the American left. And uh, her Cassandra-like powers are, you know, uh, more and more to to the fore. And I I hope she escapes the fate of Cassandra, because uh, she actually is someone who should be listened to uh, and and honored. Uh, And um, uh, she has predicted this dystopian course for a long time, has a novel um, that's uh, serialized on her substack called Red State, uh, that... um, um, has really effectively predicted where we are uh, and is, I think, uh, will be uh, seen in the future as a sort of, you know, perfect companion to Margaret Acklin's uh, Handmaid's Tale. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the, uh, Linda's also the author of, like, many books on um, legal, uh, issues of um, law and human rights, uh, and uh, I'm very grateful to have uh, Linda on. Um so uh, actually, I mean, to sort of start with all this, I, I think one way, um, one important issue which I I've written about in a column, um, is uh, you know like where are we heading now? And um, I think in the uh, deci- uh, majority decision for Dobbs, um, Samuel Alito um, offered what one scholar called reassurance passages. These are passages where he basically said. Okay, we've gotten rid of Roe and Casey. Uh, There's other laws that, there's other previous decisions that I don't like and I thought were badly decided, like Griswold, uh, you know, uh, establishing privacy and the right to contraceptive, uh, Lawrence uh, overturning sodomy laws, uh, Obergefell uh, establishing marriage equality, but Alito says, you know, these are not as important as abortion, so we're not going to touch them. And that's meant to be reassuring. Less reassuring is the concurrence by Clarence Thomas, uh, which said, uh, uh, which tried to hold uh, Alito, but also the other judges, like including John Roberts, by their previous words, saying like, you know, like, guys, you have previously written that these like decisions were bad and were unconstitutional and uh, Thomas said that the we, the court has quote a duty uh, uh, to uh, you know uh, correct the error is the words that Thomas used correct the error the error being basically the whole edifice of uh, sexual uh, uh, freedom uh, that's uh, been created uh, through the uh, uh, both um, political agitation and uh, uh, legal. Decisions over the last uh, sixty years, uh, and so and it's interesting. In the dissent, um, the, uh, the the three liberal dissenters uh, basically agreed with Thomas on this point. They're basically saying all these rights are intertwined. Um, I think the comparison they use is the, the you know the the, the uh, kids game uh, Genji, uh, where if you if you pull one block, the whole thing comes tumbling down. Ah, uh, and so, so it's a real question. Is Alito, are we to be reassured by Alito's thing, or are we, is Thomas the more accurate prophet? Uh, so, Cassandra, can you, uh, Linda, can you tell me what <laughs> you think?
2: So, I think that Clarence Thomas may be the Cassandra of the right. <laughs> yes. Because he has been his way out, only Thomas signs off on them. Uh, seemingly random uh, dissents and and concurrences have turned out to predict the course that the conservative legal movement is going to take. Mm -hmm. So I take him, being the other Cassandra, of course, I take him very seriously. And um, and I I think that uh, three things are true, each of them unpleasant in its own particular way, like Tolstoy said about Happy, unhappy families. Um, if the um, if uh, the Constitution only protects rights that are explicitly named in the text, um, let's bracket the history business for a moment because I don't believe them for a single minute on that. If the Constitution only protects rights that are explicitly uh, described in the text, then Griswold falls. Uh, the right to same-sex marriage falls, the uh, decision against um, criminalizing sodomy falls, okay? What Thomas did not say is that it may also be that the um, protection of interracial marriage, Loving versus Virginia falls, although I would argue that that's an application of the 14th Amendment prohibition against race discrimination. So, um uh, but certainly, setting that aside, those all fall. Um, so that's one possibility, right? That they're they're saying that it has to be explicitly in the Constitution, or it has to be in Madison's diaries from the moment, um, or it falls. Um, if what if you look closely at what Alito said, what he said was the reason that he can distinguish. Abortion from all those other unenumerated rights is that abortion is uniquely bad because it involves the presence of, wait for it, the fetus. That then leads me to the second terrible development, which is if the presence of the fetus means that the behavior is uniquely terrible then there is a potent argument and it's going to come up in the next couple of years. I know it, you heard it here, Cassandra, remember? That um, the fetus is alive for purposes of the 5th and 14th Amendment, okay? You can't have it both ways. Either it's a matter of unenumerated rights, in which case all this other stuff goes down, or it's the potent claim of fetal life, in which case you're going to be looking right at a national constitutional prohibition against abortion and certain kinds of birth control on the grounds that life begins at conception. Number three. <laughs> just to clarify that, just listeners are clear. Uh,
1: what you're predicting and I, I think it's very plausible is that the Supreme Court in the coming years will recognize fetal personhood and make right. that cornerstone of law which is not left of the states like abortion is murder all over the country and has to be treated as murder which also means that like it's not just that it can be uh, outlawed but it has to
2: be punished the way murder is punished but, correct. So, but, but let's go to point number three Otherwise it would be unequal enforcement of the laws and you couldn't have a murder law that said that only killing white people is criminal, although we effectively do that. But anyway, um, the third uh, development is that uh, Casey um, actually to some extent shifted the foundation for the right to abortion off the unenumerated rights that were described in Roe and over to the equal protection uh, provisions of the 14th Amendment. And that was why RBG with Bader Ginsburg was a bit more pleased with Casey than one would expect, given that Casey was a ghastly decision. Um, But better than the alternative. It's like the Henny Youngman joke. How is your wife, Henny, compared to what? So compared to what we're looking at now, Casey was, but it's a terrible decision. And Ginsburg supported it because she felt that O'Connor had shifted the grounding of the abortion rights over to women's claim for equal protection. If that is true, then overruling Casey means that sex discrimination is now not implicit in the 14th Amendment. It's an unenumerated right. The 14th Amendment says nothing about sex. So overruling Casey means that they will be going next after the whole body of law that Ginsburg established in the 70s, in reading sex into the 14th Amendment in 1971, and then broadening the prohibitions against sex discrimination from that toehold. Are you following me? Yes. Okay. So remember, um, the right to be free of sex discrimination is also not deeply rooted in American history and tradition. Uh, Reed v. Reed was just decided two years before Roe v. Wade, so the court can, and I think probably will in the next five years, if we don't get some kind of chokehold on them, um, uh, undo the other unenumerated rights um, and um, grant fetal personhood under the 14th Amendment and uh, start to roll back the prohibitions against sex discrimination that Ginsburg had them read into the 14th Amendment, where it absolutely does not appear. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so- I, I want to add one more thing. Nobody talks about this, and I do not understand why. It may just be that I'm the oldest person in the world, and I remember when it happened. Um, Griswold v. Connecticut really traces back to a decision called Skinner versus Oklahoma, which is a sterilization case. hmm So the right to decide whether to bear or beget a child, right, that language comes from Skinner. Yeah. And so by saying you can't sterilize people, an unenumerated right.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: Right. Um, You then say you, you can't prohibit them from having children. And from that, and if you look at the briefing and stuff in the run-up to uh, Griswold, to Griswold, that's where it came from. Um, You then say in Griswold, you also can't prohibit, you can't prohibit them from restraining from bearing and begetting a child. So it is a straight line from the decision making sterilization unconstitutional. In 1947, after World War II, gave us a little lesson in how dangerous sterilization could be, mm-hmm. to Griswold and from Griswold to Roe.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> the, the, uh, it's exactly the case that these are all intertwined, and that there's like it's a domino effect that if you you know uh, get rid of one, you'll get rid of uh, you know like the dominoes will fall. Um, and I want to add like another kind of. Um, for their point, which is that it's not just a matter of the way the law is, but that the law is embedded in a social structure. And that the right. right has, you know, like, coming out of the opposition, not just the role. I mean, the real origins of this Go back to Brown versus Board of Education. That is when the American political right started to organize against the, the courts, um, and you know, well before Roe, like you know, the John Birch Society, our older listeners will remember, had like uh, posters all over America saying, "You know, impeach Earl Warren." Warren. Um, so, so, they've been opposed to like you know the uh, the courts finding for these rights for a long time, and in their opposition, they have created an infrastructure. And the infrastructure includes like, not just getting these justices in, but they have the Federalist Society, which is to vet the judges to make sure that you don't get another suitor or another Kennedy uh, that like, uh, or, or another O'Connor that's like, you know, like doesn't do what you want. You wanna get the judges that give you what, the results you want. So you need a Federalist Society to vet them and to give a list to like any dunderhead who's president like Trump uh, to sign off on it. And beyond the federal society, you have a whole like uh, legal institutions all over America that are pushing the states to push laws in red state legislatures that are like, will exactly like raise these constitutional issues. Um, and, uh, and then also litigants that will like raise these constitutional issues, which then now that you have a friendly court will take up. So, so there's a whole kind of like infrastructure that's kind of in place, uh, and I think it's important to understand. You know, it's not just we're up against six judges, you know, or however many Republican judges are. These judges are supported by a social instit- institution, and I think, um, I mean, one reason I'm raising that is I feel like so, there's some liberals that are very. Like refused to see this. I saw. I mean, I don't want to pick on him, but I saw a tweet by Matt Iglesias where he says, you know, that you know, it was this was not the conservative legal movement's triumph. It was just the fact that RBG, you know, didn't resign when she should have. And uh, there's an element of truth to that. Like she, sh- I think she should have resigned. You know, and 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 we wouldn't uh, necessarily have this decision. But you know, even if she had resigned, you still, you know, they 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 would have still had like a five-four court. And they would still be doing; they'd be chipping away at it. They wouldn't be able to be as radical as they are now, but they'd still be chipping away at all these rights, as if you been, can't been,
2: have you can't have a political movement that cannot make a single mistake. Yes, the problem is that liberal and progressive politics in America and the Democratic Party live in an environment structured so heavily to the empty states of the rural racist right,
1: yeah,
2: that and the heirs of the enslavement. That if you blink if you don't match your shoes in your handbag you then you get got a republican president and and the rest falls it i have heard i am so old that i remember when everybody blamed what happened in 2000 on the fact that al gore was not a perfect candidate yeah. and i said at the time if you have to have a perfect candidate yes. you're gonna lose of so, course, it's especially like, like you know at, at some point <laughs> you know, Everybody's going to screw up sometime, and of yeah. course, you cannot possibly say that the Republicans never screw up. We're seeing yeah. every day in those hearings a very graphic example of them screwing up. The difference is that the system is skewed toward them. And I want to say one more thing, which is the uh, the hysteria over women getting abortions has a racial element in it. And it's very important never to lose sight of that. You raised Brown v. Borg, right? And and it is it was in fact the pulling of the tax exemptions from the segregated private schools that brought the evangelical movement into politics in the first place. It wasn't Roe v. Wade initially. They turned to Roe v. Wade as a potent organizing opportunity. But what first brought them into politics was uh, when Carter's uh, Internal Revenue Service pulled the tax deductions for the SAG Academies that they were running all over the South. So people wouldn't have to go, white people wouldn't have to go to school with black children. So the racial and the sexual agendas are inextricably intertwined. And I wanna play Cassandra here for a moment and say, if you trace Row all the way back to Griswold to Skinner versus Oklahoma and you undo Skinner versus Oklahoma, then you are going to be in a position to force white women to bear children for the great replacement theory and to sterilize black people if there's no brown and there's no Skinner okay. Then, there, then you are directly on the path to sterilizing Black people and forcing white women to have children to... produce And you will take them away from the white women and give them to a childless white Christian families who want to adopt them. That is the dystopia that I see. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. And I, we actually saw
1: this... Um, um, Uh, As an illustration of this, uh, there there was a a Republican lawmaker, Mary Miller, who spoke at a Trump rally, and she, you know, said, uh, we um, want, uh, is very grateful for Trump for preserving white life. Now, afterwards, her uh, staff said, oh, she meant to say right to life, but this is uh, you know, a know lawmaker who previously just a few days earlier you know had said you know Hitler was right about one thing you know the the youth are the future uh, so I, I'm not inclined to cut her a lot of slack on this one uh, and I, I don't think we should be either and it's absolutely the case that yeah uh, all these racial anxieties about um, the diminishment of white America and the the, the loss of the stranglehold that of um, uh, white Christian America over uh, the country's polity the loss of their hegemony, uh, a potential loss of their hegemony, is really driving all this. I, I think that's absolutely right, and uh, it, it's a very—I um, uh, mean, it's it's hardly an accident that you know Trump, the build the wall candidate, was also the one who put in you know three justices that have overturned Roe and Casey. It, It's—I I don't think one can would see all these things as
2: accidental it's impossible to see it as an accident and and all those uh justices are private school virginia private school products yeah and and then there's the uh ever so christian amy coney barrett but um but I I think it's really important and I get this from the work I did on the abolition book right I mean spending all those years working on abolition I, I spent a long time learning about the American South and the slave society and it is so resonant to me of the resistance to people who are not white And not just that, the immigration thing is about a kind of resistance to a cosmopolitan world, right? Immigrants who both brown, black, white, sky blue, pink came to America, they revived obscure towns like... Yeah, I've been upstate New York and all of a sudden they're thriving and we're, you know, and I'm living here in New York City in a, you know, a very diverse environment and seeing it thriving. And and it's that it's the education driven urban cosmopolitan society that they are fighting against. And if you if you want to resist that, your cultural matrix that the courts operate in, um, and the courts follow the election returns ultimately and the electoral system is skewed toward those forces. Um, Your cultural matrix is going to make it possible to uh, reverse Skinner and then to say, um, the state has an interest in uh, poor people and people who aren't married and stuff not reproducing and to sterilize them I, you know, and so you might be thinking, like, oh, Linda Hirschman's always hysterical. And there is an argument that given the last several years, it's not unreasonable to be hysterical. But um, I want to speak to Matt Iglesias, which is don't get on Twitter and tell me I'm being hysterical. <laughs> I'm the woman who wrote Red State 17 years ago. And now the red states are proposing to forbid women to leave Missouri to get an abortion.
1: No, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, this is a theme we've hit on throughout the podcast, but I think I, I want to impress upon listeners that uh, Linda has actually been a Cassandra. I mean that in all sincerity. Uh, and then a lot of what we're seeing now is uh, stuff that she's uh, been predicting. Um, and uh, But the reverse side of that, um, Uh, aspect. I mean, like, to uh, again, I don't want to pick on Iglesias too much, but I mean, I think his view, and I think it's a view that's more widely shared among some liberals is that this is all about elite decision makers. That if you just had, you know, RBG uh, not resigning and, uh, you know, like replaced by a liberal, you know, we could hold everything together. And I think that, you know, what's skewed or myopic about this, Um, Is that it doesn't see the role of social movements and of political organizing, which is what made it possible because I want to emphasize, like, you know, like a majority of the judges that found for Roe were Republican appointees, but even beyond that, the five judges that like, you know, made up the Casey decision were all Republican appointees. They were, The court yeah, was almost entirely
2: Republican. I, I think it was entirely Republican. At uh, that point, it was like nine Republican uh, judges, appointed judges. That's why they thought they could uh, do uh, then what they did this week.
1: And, and to actually, so what you had to get to get from Casey to Dobbs, you actually had to have a political movement that was organized enough that it would start vetting judges and winnowing out the court and pushing their own judges towards uh, uh republican judges uh to change uh and you basically had to get a system where republican judges were much more willing to like overturn precedent than they were and that's not just a matter of like an elite thing this is like a social movement that was organized uh often funded by very wealthy people uh but 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 uh, able to use the fact that they could organize in churches and that's a, a great venue and i think that the only way to counter it, the reason i'm emphasizing all this is that if there's going to be any reversals, any fighting back, you need something comparable in terms okay. of like. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Actual political mobilization. Uh, And I know a lot of people, you know, coming out of Friday over the weekend are in despair. And I think that they're rightly, like, angry um, uh, at the Democrats for, like, uh, not having fought harder, for not codifying uh, reproductive rights when they could. But, I mean, the, the only answer to this is, like an, an equal and opposite movement that is a social movement that you, takes over a political party and forces that political party to do its activity. And I so I want to tell you, so I'm, I'm leading all this to talk about solutions. And um, I thought one of the best people was uh, 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 Congresswoman um, Alexandra. Uh, yeah, she uh, is so smart. And I think this I whatever I thought you would enjoy this because I think that it, she and you are on the same page because she right. actually specifically cited Lincoln that like at Lincoln and FDR as like you know these were not presidents that simply said well the court decided this we have to go along they went after the legitimacy of the court uh, as Lincoln very explicitly did after like uh, Dred Scott. Um, uh, and as FDR did against, you know, like court decisions, trying to limit the, the welfare state uh, and by threatening to expand the court, um, which he wasn't able to do, but which actually had a real political impact. I mean, if, if you look at it, the courts like really scaled back what they were willing to do. Which in time
2: that saved nine. That's the, the reason that they changed, the reason that Justice Roberts, whoever it was, or now, I think it was Justice Roberts, changed his position is that um, he was threatened by FDR. Yes. And and um, of course, I, of course, believe that AOC got this idea or someone on her staff got this idea because I have been relentlessly tweeting it for six months. Right. I mean, I know about Lincoln because I worked on that abolition book and he campaigned on that. Okay. Red Scott was in 1857 and Lincoln campaigned for president two years later and said we will not abide Right. We will not let that court de- destroy our country. We will not. And then when the war broke out and the um, Southern spies were going around the rail yards in Maryland, threatening the security of the District of Columbia, he arrested them. And the same justice, Roger Tawney, came after Lincoln and said, you've got to let those Confederate spies go. And Lincoln said, well, you've delivered your opinion. Now you can enforce it. He paid no attention to Justice Tawney at all. They stayed in jail, he saved the union, and then later they added more justices when they added more circuits. So so I have been flogging that for months. Mm -hmm. And I was, of course, delighted to see AOC take it up because I believe that she and people like her, but most of all her, uh, is is the vision of the future that I'm looking at for a robust movement for social justice within the democratic party. She's so smart and she's so clear about the role of social media. And when you were talking about how the right organized, you named all the things that I believe a successful social movement requires. Take the moral high ground, stop calling it choice. Stop talking about precedential value of old opinions and say, What's the moral argument for uh, abortion? And that is that women are entitled to have full human lives. That's the moral argument. Take the moral high ground. Stick to your issues, okay? You cannot solve every single problem in society with one social movement. We need a revived feminist movement. And that would also if properly constructed this time start to address some of these racial things which affect black women so badly, so heavily second and third you named it when you said they organized through the churches have weekly meetings,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right and if if we can have a revived movement that will do those three things i think we can start to roll this back my friend moira donagan from the guardian has been um starting to tweet about this and write about this in the last few days and um she has invoked exactly the right model for it, which is ACT UP. Yeah, no, absolutely,
1: absolutely. I, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, we have like, you know, uh, 200 years of American history, but also the history of like many other countries all over the world that, that, that you know, like you, you can't in a democratic age, like you, you need social movements to actually like effectively uh, uh, change things. Um, and uh, do you want to say just a few words about like what, what do you think the agenda should be? Like you know, like there's obviously people are talking about like you know expanding the courts. Yeah. What, 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 what do you? But I mean, like, what do you think that um, uh, if the Democrats somehow man are able to leverage you know the the justified anger that people have, um, and change the terms the, the uh the midterm so that they hold outs and
2: expand their Senate. What should they be doing? Okay, so they have a program, which is not crazy. And that is you pass a statute codifying Rome. Mm-hmm. Okay. As a federal statute, not a constitutional decision like Rome. Yeah. Okay. As a federal statute, you, you pass the statute. And um and you and in order to do that, you have to uh, revoke the filibuster for purposes of, of protecting constitutional rights. While I am at it, I would address the underlying thing and revoke the filibuster for purposes of protecting voting rights before the election 2024, right? That's the substrate. You got to protect voting rights. And if you've got enough senators to revoke the filibuster for constitutional rights purposes, you can do both the Roe v. Wade statute and you can protect the underlying power of the numerical democratic majority. So I would do that. Now you run directly into the Supreme Court of the United States. It is nonsense to assume that that court is going to look at a statute codifying role, having just said that there's nothing in the constitution that protects the right to an abortion and say, oh, but Congress can of course pass a law doing it. The only argument that Congress could make for any residual congressional authority to pass such a statute is the Commerce Clause, okay? Or they could actually do a smart thing and reverse the slaughterhouse cases and say we're passing this under the constitutional provision that protects the privileges and immunities of citizens. I, as a scholar, would love to see that happen. But let's assume they do the obvious thing and say we're acting pursuant to the Commerce Clause. Well, the court has already shown that it's willing to Say that Congress does not have enough power under the Commerce Clause to do the things that the conservative justices don't like. The first application of the Constitution to limit what Congress could do was to strike down a part of the Violence Against Women Act. These guys understand who the adversary is.
1: Yeah,
2: right. You cannot move to the suburbs and get away from your wife. So they, um, they, so they will say. You know, Congress does not have any constitutional authority to legislate on this subject. It's not commerce, and it's, it's a personal right, and the fact that you happen to pay the abortion clinic doesn't put it into com- commerce, and they can also say, bah, 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 which is the functional equivalent of the quality of the reasoning and Dobbs. Yes. So, okay, that's what I think would happen. So, you, so we win the midterms. The Democrats find their spine, to use a ladylike euphemism for what they lack, and they pass this statute and and, and while the ink is drying, the Republicans go to the captive Trump judge in West Texas and get a national injunction against the enforcement of the Roe Act on the grounds that the Congress does not have the constitutional authority to legislate on this subject. That's what's going to happen. The question then becomes, there are two questions actually, is the Congress going to, in passing that law, include in the law a provision that says we have control over the jurisdiction of the federal courts and we hereby say this law is not subject to the jurisdiction of the federal courts? That is called stripping provision. You strip the jurisdiction of the federal courts from the law that you don't want them to mess with, okay? Mm -hmm. That's one possibility. Um, If you can, if that happens, then the question becomes um, who enforces the Roe Act? So Mississippi says, we're going to arrest our abortion providers and the abortion providers say, we have the Roe law now to protect us, but we can't go to federal courts to stop you Mississippi from doing this because the Congress has stripped the jurisdiction of the federal court from the law. Normally you would then go to state court. I do not actually wanna put the rights of women in America in the hands of the Mississippi state courts. So um, what then happens, right? And I have um, a solution which is that the executive branch, which is also a constitutional branch of government, sends the people from the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice to enforce the Roe Act and and protect the abortion clinics in in Mississippi, and say that they will pardon anyone who is arrested, who uh, under a law that violates the supreme federal law of the land. So what you get is either the executive can nationalize the National Guard and send them in to guard the abortion clinics like they did in the um, in the schools. You know, yeah, the Jesus, yeah. Right, so I'm like, I'm talking to Biden. I'm like, Biden, I'm not asking you to be Lincoln. I'm not even asking you to be FDR. I'm asking you to be Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. So there are ways in which the federal government can, with its control of the sword, right? Yeah. Remember the court has neither the person nor the sword, protect the abortion clinics and also offer them. So that's one strategy. Yeah. The other strategy is you pack the court, yeah. right? So you don't strip it of its jurisdiction. You simply say, you say several things. You say, we are no longer going to obey a single federal judge issuing a nationwide injunction, okay? Then it goes up to the Court of Appeals and you say only the Supreme Court and you've packed the Supreme Court with four more liberal justices. And um, so the Supreme Court won't strike it down. What you cannot do is neither of those things. Okay, if you're gonna have a statute, you're gonna, it's gonna go to the courts. You have to control what the courts can say about what you're doing. And if you go to the American electorate this summer and say, elect more Democrats, we're gonna pass the Roe law. You are going, I I would be quiet. I would not alert the electorate to this, but it it doesn't matter. The Republicans will immediately say, and we're gonna strike it down, Mm -hmm. right? They're yeah, immediately yeah. going to say that. Don't vote Democratic thinking this is going to help you. Yes. So the Democrats have to be prepared to get around the court, strip the jurisdiction, pack the court. The final thing that they can do is they can do things that do not require court enforcement, okay? So my thinking, uh, my friend Ali Mistal has the proposal that the uh, um, federal government lease to independent contractors abortion service provi- provision yes. in the uh, federal lands in the red state. So you'd have an abortion clinic at every post office and in Indian reservation, and so forth. Right. That's yeah. the idea, um, and that and they would have to be protected by either the nationalized, federalized national guard again, or the army. Mm-hmm. Okay they would have to be projected. That's one option, the schoolhouse door, right? I thought that we might start, and this is movement building also deep. This is not just legalistic. Remember what I do is I write about movements and how they succeed. And one of the ways you succeed is by creating very visual images of conflict on the streets. Mm -hmm. The abolition movement used it in resisting the rendition of fugitive slaves and um, the civil rights, racial civil rights movement used it in the Edmund Pettus Bridge, right? Mm -hmm. So I think what the federal government should, executive branch should do, the Department of Justice should hire a fleet of buses and send them and, and, and establish underground rail, above ground railroad stations in every post office in every red state in America and say every day a bus is going to leave from Biloxi post office for the nearest abortion clinic for free, anonymous and for free. Okay, you can arrive with a bag over your head if you don't want to get. It. Yeah. And we are going to bus you out of Mississippi to the nearest or Texas to the nearest abortion clinic clinic, and those buses should be protected by the Federalized National Guard or the United States Army. Finally, I have offered, because I am old, and I think an effective social movement combines the people who do not have anything left to lose, Mm -hmm. okay? That's act up. They were dying. Yes. Okay? I'm old and therefore about as close to death as the guys were in ACT UP. And I want to volunteer to form a grandmother's bus driving corps, (laughs) right? And we will go to the post offices in Mississippi, just like the Freedom Riders did in the 50s and 60s, just like the Freedom Riders did in the 60s. We'll go there and we will drive the buses and let, the let the uh, white supremacists and the misogynists in those retrograde states attack the buses driven by the white-haired ladies of the revived feminist movement, and and I think that I think that we would also go to the states that border Canada. Canada has said right? Americans come to Canada all the time and get care. There's a bunch of red states on the border with Canada. That's right, and, yeah. right. And we would establish above ground railroad stations in the post offices in those states, whatever they're called, North Dakota and places like yeah. that. And, um, and us uh, old grandmothers of the revived feminist movement will go to those places and drive those people to Canada. And one of the things that the Fed, I mean, this is like not rocket science, if I can think of all this stuff, then surely all of the combined forces of the smart yaleys at the Justice Department could figure this out, uh, issue uh, passports. Yes. So all you have to do is show a positive pregnancy test, come to the Above ground railroad station, and get on the bus, and you get a passport to go to Canada for two days or whatever is required. So, we could do this. And if they try to stop it, you've got Bull Connor.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, and those- I, 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 well, I mean, I think all the stuff that you're proposing, and I'm really grateful to have like, you know, such so, wide ranging and visionary uh, proposals, because I think that's what is going to be needing you have to have both a movement, but then also a political party that is not averse to conflict, that actually sees conflict as beneficial because the the point of conflict is that it will um, uh, make people aware of things, keep it in the news, and that if you have a majority of people on your side, um, as they do with like, you know, like abortion rights, where I think like, you know, one can safely say, 60% of the American public is on your side, then, like, conflict is great, and my only worry um, is, I mean, I think that the current democratic leadership, uh, and I'm not, I don't want to, you know, generalize to all Democrats because there's many fighting Democrats, but I mean, you know, like Elizabeth Warren and AOC, but I mean, like, the current leadership of the Democratic Party is, it's not just, it's not a political thing. They're conflict-averse. They see conflict. They see their role as trying to return America to normality after the Trump era. And they want to try to, you know, have bipartisan comedy and they want to try to, you know, uh, uh, let people branch, let, let's not have, uh, 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 and, and uh, lower the temperature. I mean, I, th- I, 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 I They're I, Henry
2: Clay, they're Stephen yes, Douglas. We've been yes, through this before. Yes. But yes. if you mobilize the population sooner or later, the gerontocratic um, uh, spineless leadership of, of, of the political party has to respond. John yes. Kennedy, was not looking for conflict with the white voters who had been a core constituency, Southern white voters who had been a core constituency of the democratic party, okay? He yes. was not since since 1876, he was uh-huh. not looking for conflict. And you can see the pleading and the calling to Robert Kennedy and Mrs. King and, you know, okay, they, and even Lyndon Johnson, who succeeded John Kennedy, was not anxious to pass the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. So, so the you have to put pressure on the empowered elite bubbled in leadership of the political parties. You have to. The, I don't know whether the Republicans would have what they would have done in 1860 if the South hadn't seceded. But I'll tell you something, G, you put enough pressure with the buses, with the grandmothers and the pregnant ladies leaving for New Mexico and the white supremacist right in the South will probably hand you a degree of bad behavior that will also ignite the resistance. No,
1: I, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think, I mean, I think that is the way forward, which is like a mobilized social movement, putting pressure on, on uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats um, and, and the sort of elites that, you know, really are, would, would just want things to go away. I think that's, I think, I think that is the way forward. Um, and I am, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for this because I think that uh, it offers a much more optimistic, View of things, then I think some of the sort of handwringing that we're uh, we've been seeing. Um, I just want to maybe uh, we're uh, uh, we going a bit long, but maybe just close uh, with some thoughts on the Kennedy decision that just came down um, on Monday morning. Uh, you know, basically uh, uh, whittling away at the uh, uh, the Establishment Clause, and you know, will allow um, uh, coaches to like lead prayers. Uh, which some students, in this very case, have you know said that were coerced, uh, they were sort of coerced into them, and this is sort of a real whittling away of the separation of church and state, um, which I think uh, you and I can agree, like was is is very connected. It's part of the same project as um, uh, uh, the Dobbs decision. So, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: So uh, again, I revert to my abolitionist years. Um, This is a part of a campaign by the racist, patriarchal revelation based part of American society against maybe one of the two or three most important institutions in a democratic republic, the public school system, right? This is really what that's about. They don't want us to have secular public schools and secular public schools were the core of the development of the Northern culture, which ultimately won the Civil War. And when travelers would go from the North, from New England, where there was a robust system of public schools, to or in the Northwest Ordinance States like Ohio and Illinois, which was part of the original political plan, when they would go to the South and see that there were no public schools or that they were terrible, they would come back and write stories about traveling in the south and how there were no public schools and at the end of the day it builds, the public schools build a culture of education and from that builds a culture of the industrial revolution. And when immigrants come to America, they want to go to where the jobs are and where they feel they'll be welcome. So they, they tipped the demographic balance in 1850 and that South became a steer they, they write about it. Yeah. Okay, this is what we're talking about now. And I just want to leave you with something. I can't remember who said it. Uh, after the civil war someone said when the engineers go to war with the farmers the farmers lose
1: yeah no no and i yeah i, I and when, more broadly i mean the sort of uh educated uh right. defeated the south and it uh, looks like uh, we're going in for um a very similar sort of uh Conflict. Uh, um, I want to th- um, thank Linda once again. You've been listening to the Time of Monsters podcast. Uh, Linda has a Substack, Red State, um, which is also the name of a, a novel that she uh, uh, wrote. Uh, nearly 20 years ago, uh, which is very prophetic and which is, um, I-, I think, perfectly comparable to Margaret Atwood's uh, Handmaid's Tale and which I-, I hope, like Handmaid's Tale, becomes uh, 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 adapted uh, and uh, gets a uh, uh, wide circulation because I think her uh, her the dystopia, she points out, is is coming to being. And the only, um, uh, the best hope we have is that people realize this, well, this is the future that they're building for us and that it needs to be resisted. Um, and so, so, uh,
2: uh, once again, thank you, Linda. Thank you for having me as always.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.